colleague of mine gets pulled into a meeting, a high-level meeting with someone on Capitol Hill, and he happens to have on jeans as a white 50-year-old male, it looks different than me as a 31-year-old black female showing up on Capitol Hill with jeans, you know? Hello, it's Jacqueline, the host of Power Banking, the podcast for women who work in male-dominated industries. Today's episode is so exciting. We had to split it into two parts. Our guest, Kendra Barnes, you may know her as the key resource. She has over a decade of experience as an international economist for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and a little over three years ago, she got into real estate investing with her husband. She shares with us intimate details of her career growing up in the agriculture space from the age of 17, and also her experience as being a landlord. I cannot wait for you to deep dive into both of these episodes. So let's get started. Welcome to the Power Banking Podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Fully, and today I have a very dynamic guest. Her name is Kendra. You may have found her on social media. She is a real estate expert, uh, recently moved to the DFW area, and I'm really excited to get her take on working in male-dominated industries. Kendra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I know you recently moved from the D.C. area. Kind of tell us a little bit about your your background professionally and personally. Yes. Yeah, so I just moved to Fort Worth like four months ago, um, but in D.C., I, well, I still am. I'm an international economist, and I work for the Department of Agriculture, so they actually let me telework from Fort Worth, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I work for the Department of Agriculture, which um, it's a, agriculture in general is a really male-dominated industry, so um, that's been interesting. But also as a real estate investor, um, I've been a real estate investor for about three years, and that's also a male-dominated industry. You don't see a lot of, like, young people in real estate investment. So it's been, it's been quite the experience. So that was a two very fascinating backgrounds. And I want (laughs) to dive into the intersection of how you um, combine the two interests, but to start off with, tell us how you found your way into agriculture. It's kind of random. So, um, so I work for the department of agriculture and they had a scholarship program where they're trying to get more minorities and more minority women into agriculture, actually, because, you know, it is very male-dominated, white male-dominated, and it's usually like an older um, demographic. So I found this scholarship program, and my mom, she had promised me if I got a full ride scholarship to undergrad, she'd buy me a car. And so literally that's the only reason I applied to this scholarship, and one of the... um, Yeah, one of the requirements was you had to major in agriculture and you had to go to a historically black college um, or university. And so I'd already wanted to go to North Carolina A&T, which is North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. Um, I wanted that car from my mom. So I applied and I got it. And with that scholarship, um, another requirement is you have to work for the Department of Agriculture for four years, basically to pay back that um not payback, but it's almost like military service in, in a sense. Um, you get that free education and you work for them for four years. But I've been there ever since 2010. Um, so that's kind of how I got into agriculture. Wow. So the incentive for a teenager to choose an agriculture <laughs> major is a car. 
Love it. So what type of car did you get? I'm just curious. Um, I got a Toyota Corolla. Yeah, nothing special, but to me, like, I was so hyped. <laughs> oh, yeah. And those Toyotas will roll forever. So, yes, good choice. All yes. right. So, yes. so as you mentioned, agriculture is very male-dominated, and I assume that in your classes it was also male-dominated, although you went to an HBCU. And let's pause for a second for our audience who doesn't know what an HBCU is. HBCUs are historically black colleges and universities. So you can definitely Google North Carolina A&T if you want more information on that. So also, um, I think it would be a good point here, Kendra, is that program, the scholarship program that you were a part of, is that still in existence? It is, and I really recommend people to look into it. If you know anyone who is a senior in high school, actually, I'm going to send you the link so you can share with your audience. As a student, being one of the only females. Um, it was, it was okay experience for me in college because for any of you who have gone to HBCUs, it's a very nurturing environment. Um, so I went to an HBCU for undergrad where I really didn't have any issues, even though I was usually like maybe there were one or two girls in in a class, really small classes, but a very nurturing environment. But when I went to grad school and so I got my undergrad degree in agricultural economics, and then I got my uh, master's in agricultural economics as well, but I went to a PWI, predominantly white institution. I went to Purdue University, and that is where, like, everything changed. Um, I was in Indiana. The black community on that campus was very small. So, you know, I was in the agricultural field, um, and usually the only black person, the only female and like the only person who didn't have a farm background, because these are people who, you know, they have generations of like farm and land ownership. And so it was a really interesting dynamic in grad school. Wow. And so transitioning from the nurturing environment to being one of the only in your, your grad school experience, then moving on to your professional environment, would you say that being at your grad school at Purdue prepared you to go into the U.S. government in the Department yeah, of definitely. Agriculture? Definitely. I'm so glad I way? got those experiences. Um, I think it just showed me, like, how to face different um, different circumstances with different cultures. Like I said, when I was at the HBCU, very nurturing environment, almost like a family atmosphere. I knew I could always just go to my professors and I mean, everyone is like so willing to help and it's, it's a very like close knit kind of, kind of thing. But when I went to Purdue, it was kind of like, you're out there on your own. You really have to like dig and fight and, and, uh, and, and just make it. So it was, it was definitely like two different worlds. And so thank you for sharing those two pieces Working at the Department of Agriculture, and I've shared on the podcast before my experience working, you know, in a division of the U.S. government and what that's like and all of the the politics involved um, working internally. In your experience working at the Department of Agriculture, when you have a seat at the table, what does the table look like? And um, just demographically, we're talking about gender and race, if you could share that with us. Yeah, the table when I'm at when I'm at a meeting, the table literally looks like white males over forty, and then me 
um, usually I'm the only woman at the table, the only person under 40 and um, the only female. So, or the only female, the only black person, the only uh, person under 40. And it, it can get a little uncomfortable at times. And I know some of my coworkers, like on Fridays, we have dress down days. And they always ask, like, why are you wearing a suit on Friday? Why are you wearing a dress on Friday? And I'm like, if I, so on Fridays, usually they're really slow, right? They're not a lot of meetings, but every now and then um, in our field, there may be like a, an emergency, like last minute meeting. Someone on Capitol Hill needs to, needs to be briefed on something. Um, and if you get pulled into those meetings, you know, if a colleague of mine gets pulled into a meeting, a high level meeting with someone on Capitol Hill, and he happens to have on jeans, as a white 50-year-old male, it looks different than me as a 31-year-old black female showing up on Capitol Hill with jeans, coming to work in jeans because it looks different. Right. And I think that's so important for, for people to recognize that, you know, in the black community, we have had this um, saying that I have believed to be true for a lot of my professional experience. You have to work twice as hard, and that includes your appearance and what you wear. And so thank you for bringing that point up. In terms of it does get a little bit uncomfortable with you being the only person under 40, you're the only woman, you're the only black, uh, you, you stand out in meetings. When it comes to contributing to the conversations, do you feel that your contributions are accepted or do you have to push a little bit harder for that? Oh, I always speak up. That's just my personality. I have heard from, you know, other colleagues are like, oh, you know, it's intimidating. I always, always speak up. So I don't have a problem with that, but I have had experiences where colleagues will like speak to me a certain way. You know, I feel like it's a little condescending tone and I've pulled coworkers aside like, hey, you know, you said this thing to me. I really didn't appreciate it. And sometimes they don't even realize it, but like having those hard conversations, like, I mean, I'm like, hey, you know, you said this thing. This is how it made me feel. Like, please don't do that again. Like, I have two degrees just like you, you know, um, don't do that again. <laughs> and how is that received? I know you said some people don't even realize it. Awkward. I think speaking up is like, is, is such a huge step in the right direction because even if the person doesn't change immediately, you know, in the back of their mind, like it's something that they know they need to work on or they at least know that. They might they might be able to do it to someone else, but they're not going to get away with it with me. Um, so it, it's usually awkward, you know, faces turn red. It, it, it's a little weird, but I don't regret speaking up about it at all. And what you said reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by Brene Brown. And Brene says, choose discomfort over resentment. And But I also like your approach to the conversation. You don't do it in a a group setting, you pull the person to the side, you share how it made you feel, and then you close that statement off with, please don't do that again. And so Mm -hmm. even if they do it unconsciously, once they do it again, whether it's unconscious or being conscious, they'll recognize it, and then they can be more aware, and that's how things change. So I think your approach to that is extremely wise. Thank you. Also, like there's a whole other layer added on for my situation just because, you know, at the I work at the Department of Agriculture, but in the agency within the department that I work in, I've been working there basically since I was 17 because with that scholarship program, you intern, you also have an in, a paid internship, another plug for the program, you have a paid internship every summer in between your college, um, your college years. 
And so through those internships, you know, I basically have like grown up in that agency. And I think it's hard for people to separate me as a Mm. 17-year-old intern and me as like this grown woman that has the two degrees and the experience. And um, so that adds a whole other layer on um, for me as well. Right, right. And I can imagine that they want to treat you like a little sister or possibly even a daughter, given the age um, difference in the group. And so how do you handle those conversations where you might have to bring to someone's attention that you are a professional with over a decade of experience? There is a situation where, so in my office, in the particular office that I work in now, um, and I know like a lot of your, or a lot of the talks you give and a lot of things, you know, on your platform, you talk about like equal pay and it always strikes a chord with me because I am underpaid. Like in my office, um, we all have the same exact job, this same exact job description. We all cover different regions. So as an international economist, um, I cover a certain part of the map, right? Dealing with all things agriculture for that part of the map. My colleagues cover different regions, and um, they're all making more than me, but we're doing the same exact job. And I've been doing it for five years, and I had a conversation with someone who um, could have changed that for me. So it came to a point where not only was I doing my job, but I had taken on the portfolio of someone else who had left the agency, and she was also, she was actually getting paid more than me. Older person, getting paid more than me. Um, I took on her job, was doing my own job, and I asked for a pay raise. And the person said to me, you're too young. Um, Wow. So, yeah, he's like, I mean, just the shock on his face was like, what? Like, I can't, he couldn't even believe, like, he could not fathom that I wanted a pay raise and to get paid for what I was actually doing. Two jobs. (laughs) So we definitely need to have an offline conversation um, about strategies so that at some point you can go in and revisit, even though you're working remotely. And that's a good point because traditionally the way that raises were given is that, oh, if you're a male and you have a family, you get more money because you have to provide for a family. And Mm -hmm. um, and I'll just touch on this briefly, but y'all know this is my soapbox, equal pay. The (laughs) The pay disparity is really complex. You know, it's not it's not intentional in many cases. And because of the demographics of your organization, of what you shared, how it's older, uh, for lack of a better word, good old boys club, the way that mm-hmm. things used to work back in the day was you gave the money to the men with the family. So I could totally see how in his mind he truly believes that he is correct in his statement to say you're too young to receive a raise because he's not paying you based on merit and based on your value and contributions to the department uh, or the agency. He's just thinking, oh, this is a young person who doesn't have kids and, you Mm -hmm. know, but she's not a man. So um, that's definitely a very, and those negotiations are very much more strategic and you have to get into the psychology and really understand the time um, and the U.S. workforce in which this person came up through the ranks so you can speak their language to get what you want because that's different negotiation strategies. 
Okay, that was so much fun. I so enjoyed talking to Kendra. We had to split her episode into two. In the next episode of Power Banking, we're going to hear about Kendra's experience as a real estate investor. And trust me, she has some good stories, some awesome takeaways, so you'll definitely want to tune in next time. So thanks for joining us on the Power Banking Podcast. Until next time, keep emulating excellence and eliminating excuses.